My guest today is Aisha Yakub, a state house candidate in the 97th district in Georgia. Um, before I get to the interview, I want to highlight some of the stuff we talked about, some stuff that I think needs to occupy a more central role in the dialogue surrounding how political candidates position themselves as community leaders. I think the most exciting part about what Aisha said was the way in which she talked about the broader substantive effect she and her allies in the policy world have had on literally the entire state of Georgia. Both through her career and personal activism, Aisha brings a perspective that I think is greatly needed and addresses the ways in which we approach electoral politics. Because I think she and her team are focusing on their community and their locality that they are positioning themselves as an ally to groups working directly in their community, and they're creating a space in which their political campaign can be integrated into a broader social movement for change. And I know this seems a little vague, but in, in the interview, Aisha and I are able to talk about immigrant justice and labor rights and justice for the disabled community. And we were able to do so in a 30-minute conversation because, one, Aisha has thought about these issues and has substantive beliefs regarding them and two because she has thoughtful positions on these issues the ways in which these the ways in which these positions and communities intersect with each other are clear it, it creates a better platform on which to begin building something much bigger than just 2018 i think people running political campaigns need to even more intensely start acting this way positioning themselves as an ally to groups who both need and deserve a bigger platform, one an elected office or political campaign can sometimes offer. And in order to make good on the promise for actual change, I think aspiring and sitting politicians need to take a long, hard look at the fundamental ways that their political campaigns block out important constituencies by not both pushing themselves to build a truly intersectional platform that goes beyond you know, rhetoric and offers ways in which to take our communities forward and push back against an economic system which favors the wealthy and punishes the poor. But also, they let important opportunities pass by by not being led by their organizing, not building support from the bottom, and you know not using their election and their campaign to build new connections and programs in their townships and their cities and their states, regardless of the electoral outcome. And, I'm, and I mean, I understand that fundamental things need to happen on a political campaign to win. I mean, believe me when I say that I get that from experience. But until coalition building outside of, say, a steering committee takes a central role in campaigning and the way we set, set up these campaigns, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to stop going on about it. Electoral workers can do better and candidates can do better. And we have to if this campaign stuff is going to do anything beyond get a couple of people elected. And so, look, I am not interested in electoral work that doesn't build into a larger structure and a larger movement. I am not interested in allowing political campaigns to take the lead in our activism. The fact that this has been the case for so long, I think, is a gigantic misstep. I am interested, however, in people using their skills to push back against, you know, austerity and 
profit-hungry exploiters and bosses and politicians who are consistently and constantly capitulating to corporations. Uh, political campaigns need to change their hearts. They really need to think about why they're running and uh, take the necessary steps to create a new model for campaigning that is more fully integrated into the lives of people instead of self-alienating by virtue of the unwillingness to do the work necessary to make this happen. And I mean, I don't think this model offers the perfect solution for dismantling the ways in which a predilection for capital coupled with the disdain for the poor has, you know, completely and utterly wrecked the lives of the people we love. I mean, most solutions are far from comprehensive anyways. But I do think it says something important to political campaigns and candidates about their priorities and their messaging and their overall structure, as well as creates an environment for candidates with strong moral stances to get elected. And so, I mean, what I believe political campaigns can do is orient themselves in such a way that puts communities and the people who organize within them first and gives them a broader platform on which to express their views gives them a broader platform to push for systemic changes which not only create demonstrable gains in the lives of many people of color and immigrant communities or the you know urban and rural poor but primes the field for those of us who are willing to begin leveling stronger critiques at the social and cultural structures that cause all this pain and suffering through an ideology of austerity and bootstrapping it's simply about using your skills to build a broader movement for real change someone like me who works in campaigning and use my skills to, yes, elevate good candidates, but more importantly, I can use these to integrate myself and the candidates I work with more fully into our communities and force the overall political campaign world to take on more of the qualities of these communities and, and groups it claims to represent. My electoral work has to be plugged into a larger scheme. Politics can't just be about elections. And maybe through all of this, we can create an environment in which even better candidates can come along behind these. I mean, thankfully, in the meantime, we have people like Aisha Yacoub working day in and day out to earn the support of her neighbors. Aisha is a candidate for Georgia's 97th State House District. She's an immigrant rights policy expert, an activist, a pro-choice Muslim woman of color endorsed by Georgia's largest LGBTQ organization, a defeater of racist house bills, a candidate with a pro-public schools, a pro-labor rights platform, a passionate personal and substantive platform for advocacy alongside the disabled, and someone who I really think has the drive and the skills necessary to flip a district. I was really happy talking with her. Here's the interview. Okay. Uh, my name is Aisha Yacoub. I am uh, running to represent the 97th House District in Georgia. Um, originally born in South Florida um, and have lived in Georgia for the last 18 years. A couple years ago, I got really involved in making sure that underrepresented communities were actually taking part in the political process. And so right. um, back in late 2015, early 2016, I founded an organization that is trying to engage Muslim voters. Um, yeah. which has continued to work throughout the um, special and local elections that we just had last year. Um, and then I currently work uh, as a policy director for another local nonprofit organization that does policy advocacy and legal services for immigrants, and particularly Asian Americans. When you did a lot of voter registration and a lot of that kind of community organizing and kind of bottom-up organizing, which is something I'm a big fan of, uh, how, did, how, did, how is that informing your campaign? I'm just interested to hear in what y'all are doing. Yeah, so... One of the big things that um, I am doing that 
even my campaign team has never had much experience in is actually trying to make sure that we are reaching out to um, voters that that maybe don't speak English as their first language um, and yep. trying to do some interesting in-language work. Um, I am planning to do some um, ethnic media outreach close to the general election and really just utilizing a lot of the tools that we have, um, which aren't really used for political campaigns. Um, mm. A lot of my campaign, you know, even my communications person um, has never had to work with ethnic media, so that's an experience for him. Um, mm. And then actually going through and trying to make sure that I have uh, paid canvassers or even volunteers that speak enough languages that really represent the changing district in which I live. Yeah, I mean, talk about your district a little bit. That's really interesting. I also live in a very, very like uh, diverse district with a lot of a lot of language representation, mostly Spanish, but a lot of stuff. Just talk about your district a little bit. Yeah, so I um, I live right now in Gwinnett County in Georgia, which is on its way to becoming the most diverse county in the southeast, yeah. if it hasn't already become. Um, and over the last 15 years, Gwinnett has seen an influx of immigrants from all over the world. Um, I particularly got to see that firsthand uh, when my family moved there um, in 2001. And so when we were there originally, it was still rural and still very uh, heavily populated with, you know, white people. You know, by the end of my high school career, I, I wasn't the only Asian American in my class, which was which is really amazing. And um, especially now when you look, if you just drive through the district, there are parts of town that, you know, people just call Koreatown because you can't drive through it and you yeah. can't read any of the business names if you don't speak Korean. Yeah. Um, and, and that's how it is all over the county. And so um, in 2016, for the very first time in a very long time, the county flipped uh, Democrat, uh, mm. which was definitely um, a surprise, but not, not unexpected. Yeah. Um, and it was for the very first time last year, a majority minority uh, population when you look at the number of registered voters. And so for wow. the very first time, we had more registered minority voters than non-minorities, right? And so that, I think, is a testament to all of the, the civic engagement work that has been happening for the last five, ten years in engaging people of mm -hmm. color voters. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm really excited about running. Um, my district was represented for the last 25 years by a very moderate Republican um, yeah. who campaigned on public education. Um, mm -hmm. It's not something I can argue with. I'm actually hoping to continue his legacy um, around public education. Um, yeah. But then again, he was elected before I was born. Um, mm -hmm. he, he came into office the year that I was born, and um, things have changed a lot since then. Yeah. And although he did a, a really amazing job in making sure that our schools were well-funded, um, I do want to make sure that I am able to advocate for some of the, the larger issues that we're seeing in our county and in our district that maybe he, he didn't have a good enough grasp on. And you're, if I, if, did I see correctly that the district that you're running for, the Republican, has not had a, a challenger in three cycles in the general election? Yeah, so, he, um, so the incumbent didn't have a general opponent for at least a decade almost. Yeah, so it, there hasn't been a Democrat run for this seat in over 10 years, uh, which is actually similar to a lot of the districts around me. So uh, in Gwinnett County, there are five open seats, including my own. Um, and in most of those situations, the, the seat has gone uncontested. Um, you know, we're seeing an influx of people just running for office in, uh, in my county and in my district. Uh, in 2017 and 2018. And so it's really exciting. Um, I know that turnout's going to be, uh, I'm hoping, uh, better than in 2014, solely because we have so many people of color running for office yeah. uh, in the primary this time around. So um, I'm really excited about that. And then my district actually is completely in the 7th Congressional District, which oh. has a um, 
there are seven, six or seven Democrats running in that primary, including two right. immigrants. And so that one will be an exciting one to look at as well. People who, and people who I know who listen to the podcast, a lot of people are from urban areas. They're, they're not around the South. Um, and so I think, I think one thing that's maybe sort of bringing places like where we live off of the periphery is stuff like education. And I'm sure you, I'm sure you have a lot of insight about the, the lives of students and teachers in your districts and the struggles and that kind of a thing. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, uh, I went through the public education system here. Um, I graduated from a school system that actually is better funded than um, a lot of other districts in, in Georgia. And um, we're slowly starting to see that that trend pick up in counties, but there's still a lack of funding for even, you know, just basic pay, pay for teachers. I mean, we're seeing all the strikes around the country. Um, there is some talk of stuff happening here in Georgia, but you know, Georgia is the right to work state and yep. we don't have very strong unions. So I don't know what will come of that, but I know that, um, you know, being able to fully fund public education is one of the things that a lot of people in my community really care about. Um, and then one other interesting thing that um, I think people aren't so familiar with outside of Georgia is we actually have this program called the Hope Scholarship. Essentially, it's free public education for students who are able to get above a 3.0 in high school and, and through college. And I was in college when I when that Hope Scholarship was at 100% of its full rate. And so I was able to benefit from getting 100% free tuition throughout my first and second year of college. And that was when the state legislature started attacking it. And I'm not sure where the percentage stands right now, but every single year they cut it while they raise tuition prices. And so yeah. um, that's been a big struggle for us. And, you know, uh, Governor Zell Miller, who was one of the original founders of the HOPE program, he just passed this last mm. month, I think. And so it's been a lot of talk in making sure that with the new candidates that are running, with people that have actually been able to benefit from the HOPE scholarship, one of the big things is making sure that it's being restored uh, because it'll help not just people like me who were, were able to benefit from being able to go to college without having to take out loans, but also people that have never had family members go to college or that right. won't even imagine going to college had they not had this opportunity. Yeah, oh no, I, absolutely. It's there's a there's a program similar to it in Florida called the Bright Future Scholarship that it it requires you know some community service hours and something like and stuff like that, but it still gives you know very large scholarship opportunities to young people, and it of course gets slashed and slashed every single year. It's a uh, but you mentioned right to work, and I wanted to talk about right to work a little bit because it also being in a right to work state and sort of the state of labor where you are, and maybe how it connects to your platform a little more broadly. Just this past session, this past year, I've actually been able to work a lot with my, with my union friends um, to actually work on some legislation. Um, I will say that part of my platform is actually making sure that, you know, as we get all these new industries coming to Georgia, I mean, we have a, a, a growing film uh, presence yep. that is here, um, and as well as, you know, talks with Amazon and other tech companies coming in, um, we're continuing to improve our labor practices and continuing to make sure that we're providing safe uh, and Mm-hmm. Uh, effective labor practices. I think one of the things that people forget to mention when they're up in Atlanta and up in Metro Atlanta is that one of the biggest um, industries in Georgia is still agriculture, and yep. a lot of a lot of the labor still comes from immigrant workers and workers that don't that don't ever have a say in the process. And so, 
um, I will do my best to make sure that, you know, we are taking a strong position when it comes to better workers' rights and, and working conditions in general for farm workers and uh, across the state. I think that's an important part of what a lot of really great campaigns like yours that are worth highlighting are managing to do is to take issues like to take your strengths, which is working directly with immigrant communities and to build a broader intersectional platform that includes things like labor. And all over the country, there's a lot of really insidious bills implying things like religious, so-called religious freedom restoration and all this kinds of stuff that keeps popping up. And I'm just curious to hear like what your experience, how your experiences are going to inform how you keep uh, all like past the work that you're already doing, which is remarkable to keep pushing back against stuff like that. Yeah. So it's, it was actually pretty amazing. The last couple of years, um, the folks that are here that are actually putting forward these religious freedom bills have tried to use Muslims against LGBTQ individuals yeah. in yeah. these religious freedom talks. And um, actually, one of my friends was um, a victim of that. So uh, a friend of mine, you know, uh, her professor at this university refused to let her wear her scarf. And I mean, you know, eventually got worked out, but there was a big news story about it. And so she, her example got used in a campaign to promote the need for religious freedom laws. And it was really interesting because obviously it forced us to, to, to rethink, you know, how we're working on issues like this. And so um, uh, this past session, you know, I, I, have, I don't work directly with LGBTQ groups because that's not the, those aren't the issues that I work on. But on multiple occasions, we have to show up together. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the past legislative sessions have proven that. And so every time that there's a, a, an effort to uh, bring religious freedom, you know, uh, religious freedom issues into uh, adoption cases or into different uh, insurance issues and things like that, um, we definitely find the need to show up together. And I'm really happy that because of because of the work that I've been able to do to support their work, I actually just got the endorsement from Georgia Equality, which is the big yeah. organization that has worked on those issues. And, um, I'll also just put it out there that my primary opponent is actually queer. And so I was concerned that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to get that endorsement from Georgia Equality. But I am glad, you know, I think my track record proves the fact that I am willing to actually fight for issues like this. And I'm really happy to say that. I'm so glad you brought it up because one of the really important... So I live in the district where the Pulse shooting happened. And uh, one one of the more remarkable things that I saw come out of that situation was the codifying of LGBTQ communities, a community I'm part of, and uh, the Muslim community in the area. I mean, shout outs to Imam Azar Subeda because he was, uh, he was working directly with a representative around here named Carlos Guillermo Smith who worked for Equality Florida um, before he was elected to office. Um, he was running that year actually. And uh, it was, it's still something that uh, I reflect back on and I think should inform more of our day-to-day politics. And sometimes, sometimes we don't maybe think how just like the element of difference between all of us and sort of a, a norm, a mainstream or whatever can really put us in similar situations with another. I just think it's really great. I think it's really important too. I mean, you talk a lot about, you know, immigration justice and I think it's super important. Again, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about what's what was happening around SB 452 and sort of that, that kind of a thing and, you know, what your campaign is doing to push back against horrifying stuff like that as well. So um, one of my... <laughs> big accomplishments from this past year was actually working to defeat Senate Bill 452 in our legislature, um, which would have created a statewide um, immigration enforcement program 
uh, to detain and deport undocumented individuals. Um, that being said, um, currently in Georgia, we have six counties, and including the, Dep the Department of Corrections, we have seven programs that currently do that. But what this program was trying, what this bill was trying to do was to codify that for local law enforcement and other counties that have yet to sign into this immigration enforcement program. Yeah. Um, this was actually an election year attempt to gain some popularity with some of the Republican candidates for governor and lieutenant mm -hmm. governor, um, and still continues to be something that they are um, talking about in their campaigns um, mm -hmm. and trying to be stricter on quote-unquote illegal immigrants. Um, and so this, what this bill taught us was actually the fact that once you actually bring everyone to the table, there is so much that we can accomplish. I mean, the fact that we were able to defeat this bill, like, literally on the last day of the session, um, it, it shows us how much potential we have in the community to actually organize, organize around these issues. Um, we were able to bring on the agriculture industry and the film industry and, and people that we don't usually work with on a daily basis, but people that get impacted by bills like these. Um, in 2011, um, Georgia had HB 87, which destroyed um, the state's agriculture economy for a very long time. And so, you know, just thinking back to what happened post HB 87, I think people were like, no, we cannot do this because our state can't handle another crash like that. And so, um, with that bill, we, we found a lot of allies, but we also realized that when it comes to the rhetoric, we weren't going to win in some places. And so um, it came down to a lot of um, making sure that, you know, even if we couldn't get enough no votes for the bill, that we were able to convince enough of our friendly Republicans to at least walk out of the vote. Um, and so up until the very last minute, we had listed about 35 Republicans that were planning to walk out when the vote had get, gotten called, um, and it never actually needed to come down to it because they just ran the clock. And so, you know, we won by not having to, to actually debate the bill on, um, on the House floor, otherwise it would have passed. Um, and so, you know, that was just one of the things that we've seen time and time again, realizing how important it is to not just work with immigrant activists and immigrant rights organizations, but we really actually saw a lot of support from um, not just not just the business folks, but also um, organizations that always that do advocacy, but maybe not on immigrant issues. And so, one of my big partners this year was Planned Parenthood Southeast and yep. um, other women's rights groups and um, domestic violence uh, organizers and people that have found connections to some of our immigrant issues, but you know maybe felt so strongly about this that they wanted to throw it throw all throw it all in and and support our cause. That's, I mean, that's really exciting. Thank you for bringing up uh, <laughs> uh, Planned Parenthood in particular. I, I've noticed that I, I, I took a look at your website, of course, and kind of looked down and, and saw that you had a, a portion of your platform about, you know, women's rights and equality and stuff like reproductive justice and stuff. You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, and um, I am working right now to make sure that I'm I'm educating myself on other reproductive justice issues that are happening um, across the country. But one of the yeah. things that uh, one of my um, – other successes from this session was actually being able to work with the other reproductive justice organizations at the state capitol to see, you know, what kind of stuff they were dealing with. And so in particular this year, there was a judicial bypass bill that they were able to stop, which just made it harder for uh, people under the age of 18 who had um, harmful conditions at home that wouldn't 
be able to get parental consent to get an abortion. And so mm-hmm. issues like that really hit me because I understand sometimes how difficult it is for people who um, live in homes where it's not safe to talk about these things or yep. where it might not be um, a topic that they can even bring up because of different abuse and, and other situations. And so um, my, you know, my personal thought and, you know, there are people that will disagree with me, but I, I truly wholeheartedly believe in a woman's right to choose. You know, uh, if that choice for, for young people involves having to get their parental consent, then that makes it a lot harder, especially in, in different in these violent situations. Well, I mean, being be, uh, un- unapologetically committing to the autonomy for women is always a good place to start. And, I mean, trans, non, just non-men in general. I think I, I've, I've talked with someone who how we were broadening our concept of gender and making sure that we're including trans women and non-binary people as well, which I think is just, you know, very important as we continue to open our communities up to more people, you know. Someone, a regular old schmo, uh, as as we would call them, or, you know, it's just a a normal person who's not involved in politics, isn't a political director or isn't an attorney or isn't in campaigns like me, wants to get involved at the community level. What were your suggestions, especially for someone who may be near you, how to start getting plugged into both campaigns as well as all these other groups that you've worked with what what advice would you give them i would actually say and i think this is new but it's not something that that has been around for too long but instead of trying to to make your way through like a county or a local party i would actually yeah. say start smaller and and find one of these um the newer groups that have popped up the indivisible groups or the um the you know we have some local groups here like find your voice and and things mm-hmm. like that that have started to organize and you'll find a lot more people that are in the same boat where you know over the last couple of years they're like man i really need to do something but i yeah. i can't dedicate my time to working on a campaign but i yeah. think that's really the place to start because they are the ones that will help amplify issues that mm-hmm. parties or candidates are trying to do and oftentimes they will be the ones to bring candidates together and actually yep. help people figure out who's the best candidate. And um, I think that's actually one of the, the great um, and one of the great things that came out of the Women's March movement was being able to identify people in your area that are also passionate and you know forming these smaller groups or coalitions that are working towards progressive issues that aren't um, you know full-fledged jobs. I think that was the hardest part for so, so many of my mm-hmm. friends. They were like, I have a full-time job. I cannot go work for a social justice organization, yeah. but this is something that I can do with my time. And, you know, maybe you meet once a month and you're able to, to ask questions of different candidates. But whatever it is, I think that's that's like one of the easiest things that um, has been put together over the last year. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, use those opportunities to grow the network. Don't just um, sit there in your little group of like mm-hmm. 10 people. But Nothing's going to change if we're just insulated within ourselves and talking to the same people. I think um, the biggest part of, of organizing our groups is actually going to come out of bringing more people to the table. And if that means talking to some people and having difficult conversations with them, then that's what needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it just takes stepping outside of your own neighborhood and looking at the it just meeting. Me, a lot of it is just meeting people where they are and figuring out what's important to them, trying to articulate it in a way. And then I think you're right because there's I plugged this group. I've already plugged this group down here before. There's a group called Organized Florida that does sort of bottom up community based like membership organization, and they work on a really broad number of issues. But because they're so community focus we want to work with them and then have the party start looking at us and say oh, okay we should do that and then turn around and follow lockstep behind it that's the ideal right at least i think so yeah i think so too i mean i like in a contested primary 
the party is not supporting us. I, I think that's, yep. I don't know if that's what happens in other states too, but they're not backing a candidate until after the primary. And so yep. really my support has been from these groups that are inviting myself and my opponent out and being able to, to actually let us talk to constituents in a way that is in a, in a progressive setting that allows us to actually kind of debate the issues. And so I'm really grateful for that. And I know that a lot of them, um, have been supportive of my campaign and I'm hoping to continue to get their support moving forward. Yeah. Uh, so actually one of the dearest issues to me is, um, actually creating a platform, uh, for individuals with disabilities at the state capitol. Um, yeah. there are very few, uh, people, very few legislators and very few organizations that work on disability rights at the capitol mm-hmm. and I want to be able to amplify those voices. Um, my sister was born on spina bifida and I have a large family history of individuals with disabilities, as well as yeah. my work experience um, early in college and, and throughout college, I worked with students with disabilities and trying to figure out how we can make college accessible for them um, in the way that college currently exists, and it's really hard to do that. And so one of my you know, long-term plans and one of the policies that I hope to be able to champion is actually bringing inclusive post-secondary education to universities and, and colleges in Georgia so that individuals with disabilities get a chance to experience college and maybe it's not the the maybe it's not a bachelor's degree that they need but being able to access some education to be able to get gainful employment down the road and so um in the realm of disability rights i want to be able to push for more education um more work opportunities um and then obviously transportation so one of the big campaign issues in my county and across the region is uh, increasing public transit but I want to make sure that as that's happening, that we're not, um, we're still making it more accessible and, and more connected to other transit networks for individuals with disabilities, because yeah. it's become increasingly hard for um, people out in the suburbs to be, be able to even access public transit. And when you think about individuals with disabilities having yeah. to, to to roll or walk like a mile down the road even get to the closest bus stop, it just doesn't make any sense. And so um, that is something that is a think from my platform that I hope to be able to, to flesh out a little bit more in the coming months. Yeah, well, you bring up such a good point, too, because in, in terms of like where people have been looking to be informed by their activism and as well as people who like some of the some of the people who are literally putting their bodies on the line and that don't nearly get enough attention i think of the healthcare protests and adapt and how everyone everyone would turn around and follow this organization who has started it and who is finishing it and it's uh i think uh, yeah broadening i think when we're building a bigger table if we're not doing it for people with disabilities then you know what the hell are we doing no and and i also think that there's so much to be done and bringing people along with that with that mm-hmm. movement too. It's not, you know, disability rights isn't something that's limited to a particular ethnic group or particular yep. gender group. And mm-hmm. it's something that, like you said, has been left out of a lot of the movement. And so I want to be able to highlight that and bring in experiences from people that I know that have been organizing here in Georgia and have been organizing in DC. And that's actually one of when I saw when I saw the pictures of the protesters being removed, it wasn't anything new to me because I right. actually you know, remember learning about this from some of my students and from some of the activists that I've met when I was doing this work. And so um, it is something that I want to continue doing and continue pushing for as a legislator um, at, the, at, the, at our state capitol. Yeah, that's remarkable. You want to do a last pit? You want to do like a, a hard pitch? Whatever kind of pitch you want, whatever you want to say for the last little bit, just go for it, man. Yeah. Um, well, I'm really excited to uh, be one of the two candidates for House District 97's uh, Democratic nomination and I'm hoping to, to get 
uh, enough support from my community and obviously from um, listeners of this podcast who are interested in supporting um, such a <laughs> unique race um, in Georgia. Um, you know, my website is www.voteisha.com. You can learn more about my issues uh, and donate if you can, but also find other ways to support my work. Thanks to Aisha for coming on the show and chatting with me. Uh, I highly recommend everyone check out her website at voteaisha.com. That's A-I-S-H-A. Come follow the podcast on Twitter at DownTicket, Facebook at facebook.com slash downticketpodcast. Um, follow me on Twitter at Kyle S. Kern, K-E-R-N. And tune in for another episode. Thanks for listening. See you soon.